Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity Podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia. And I'm Zach James, also occupying stolen Lenape lands. I'm Azaria Keys, and I'm also occupying Lenape land. We're really grateful to be joining you today for this Q&A episode of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast. Yes, and today we'll be delving even more deeply into the subject of coming out at work, stepping out of the corporate closet. So you'll definitely want to listen to that episode if you haven't already before you listen to this one. I think that this episode is useful for members of the LGBTQ plus community, as well as for allies. And I hope this Q&A will be as well, because it's important to develop DEI capacity. And I have found that the skill sets needed for embracing visible diversity are different when elements of a person's identity may not be visible. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I've had experiences being treated one way by someone over the phone and being treated another way by that same person when we are in person. And it always makes me think about what the experience may be like for someone who is navigating the world, being perceived by others to be, let's say, cis or straight or able-bodied or however else others perceive them, when the reality of their identities and lives is very, very different. Yeah. And sadly, it leads to all sorts of microaggressions and really painful moments of feeling like people either have to hide elements of themselves or if they choose to disclose and somehow they're targeted for their identities. So I think it it really leads to a lot of pain and trauma for folks. Yeah. And when you're talking about this element of hiding one's identity, what's really sad about that is that roughly half of LGBTQ plus employees aren't out at work. That's hard to hear. And I'd imagine that would make people feel a split between their personal and professional lives. It absolutely does. I remember years ago, I was dating a teacher and she lived a couple hours away from me and I went to visit her for the weekend and we went out to lunch and we held hands regularly when she came to visit me in Philly. And so I went to hold her hand and she visibly recoiled and she pulled her hand away really fast. And I asked what just happened. And I remember her telling me that because she was a teacher and we were in her relatively small town in New Jersey and could run into one of her students or a parent or something like she just really was not out and was not comfortable being seen as her true self. And I remember too, whenever I visited her and we did run into one of her students or a parent or someone she knew in her community, she would introduce me as her quote unquote friend. And I don't know if she was afraid of losing her job necessarily, but I think she was afraid that she'd be perceived differently and viewed as a threat, which was really sad to me. Yeah, Darlise, that's that's terrible. I'm sorry to hear that. And I know Azaria just alluded to it, but this issue is pervasive. So can you talk a bit about why it's so important to include this subject among our episodes this season? Absolutely. I mean, just even listening to Darylise's story, and we'll hear it a lot. We've heard it a lot in the main episode, just how people who are part of the LGBTQ plus community are constantly placed in different environments where they can't consistently show up as themselves for fear of safety and other concerns. And so that, first off, the mental gymnastics that come from having to constantly switch how you present yourself in certain rooms can be really exhausting. But 
specifically for the temple community and here at Sedwick, one of our first events was a day-long conference called Equality at Work 2022 Voices of Pride. And it was a student-led event and it had a great turnout and it had three panels, a keynote, all focusing on LGBTQIA plus issues in the workplace. And the feedback we got from so many of our students, including some of the students that helped conceptualize the conference, it was really incredible, but also a little sad because there was so much excitement that there was a conference like this existing in a space like a business school. But it also pointed to the fact that that's rare and that shouldn't be rare. We're literally now in 2023. And so I think the importance of this topic is that representation matters and people having to exist where they already feel like they're closeting so much of their identity. I think it's up to those of us who are allies and just all of us in general to educate ourselves around what people's identities are, what their experiences might be. And we're not going to be able to advance if we don't have these conversations. Thank you, Azaria. So quick follow-up question. Because many people aren't out at work, how did you select the guest voices for this episode? I think on Sedwick's end, this might've been a bit easier. One, because we held that Equality at Work conference. And so we had already had faculty members who volunteered to be a part of that. So we first reached out to them and those faculty members all self-identify as a part of the LGBTQIA plus community and they are out about it at work. And then also when we're looking beyond those faculty members and searching for people who might do research in this area, there was never an assumption that just because you did research in this area meant that you identified as a part of the LGBTQIA plus community. So we really just past the initial members who were a part of the the conference who had personal experience, we then looked for people who had research specific to this area and found several people who their research speaks for a lot of what we talk about in this episode. So that part was really easy because research is public and it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with how someone identifies. I think that's a really poignant point that you made about someone can have a research interest but not necessarily be a member of the community or they can be a member of the community but not necessarily want to be an expert for the entire community. And one of the things that I really appreciated about doing some of the interviews for this episode was that most of the voices that you'll hear were people who do identify as a member of the LGBTQ community, but there was also a lot of allyship that came forward that people spoke about, which I think was really important, specifically Axe in his work in the military, speaking about the impact of LGBTQ activism in his life and his career. And then I think just generally what was really pretty special for me and significant was that whether someone was coming at this from a research perspective or whether they were coming at it from a lived personal experience of being a member of the LGBTQ community who had experiences both being out and not out at work, I was really most struck by the personal connection that each person had to these issues, whether it was something that they themselves had experienced or a loved one or a moment of bystandership that really shifted their life and their trajectory. And that was the piece that I found the most impactful wasn't just people's willingness to speak about these issues, but the way in which they were deeply personal for folks. 
But speaking of that and impactful moments and stories, I'm so curious, Zach and Azaria, what are some of your takeaways from this episode and what impacted you? There was one really major takeaway for me, and I, I call it major because I've used this in practice a few times since hearing it. And it's kind of broad, but it made a lot of sense. And it was about using pronouns and the impact that that has. I think it was Dr. Heffernan was speaking to it and gave a really awesome example and a story. But for me, showing that that is how you are able to represent that you're an ally, I've actually gotten in conversations recently with folks asking about pronouns or getting into a discussion that involved pronouns and them wondering why they need to use it because they don't have to identify as something different. They aren't LGBTQ. And I said, well, it was more about being an ally. This is how you can show someone else that being around you or having discussions with you is safe. And you're able to give that confidence to someone else. Now, if they're not safe, they don't know if you don't use pronouns. But let me ask you directly, are you fine having conversations and making safe space for people that are different than you? And they were like, well, yes. And I was like, well, you shouldn't have a problem using pronouns. And they actually now do that on their LinkedIn account. So I've used it in practice. And I thought that was a really solid takeaway from this episode, for sure. Great points, Zach. For me, I would say that this is an area I think that I'm constantly seeking to learn more about. I do consider myself an ally and I have several loved ones who identify as a part of the LGBTQIA plus community. And so what was nice about this is as you have people on this episode talking about their lived experiences, you really realize that it's not a static situation for anybody. There's a lot of fluidity in identity and and understanding oneself and where your identity might be today is not where it's going to be necessarily five days from now, a year from now, whatever it might be. And so when you have people sharing such vulnerable realness about their own journeys of the ebbs and flows of how they've come to identify the way that they currently identify, it makes me as an ally feel a bit more comfortable with, okay, I'm not always going to get it right, but as long as I go into these discussions with respect as number one, curiosity and a willingness to be wrong and be told that I'm wrong and then a willingness to correct. I think sometimes I get nervous around these discussions because I might not know what is the proper language to use in a situation, but I'm always pushing myself to ask the questions and allow myself to be educated when necessary. And so what I took from this episode was like, it's okay to not know everything. In fact, you shouldn't think that you know everything because you don't. Even if you are a part of the community, your experience does not mirror the experience of any other person to a T, right? So having that comfortability to step back and say, I don't know a lot. I want to learn a lot more and I want to continue to be an ally and allowing myself to have some grace with myself in those moments where I feel like I might not be hitting the mark correctly, but then now taking and continuing to take actionable steps towards being a better ally every day. So that was like definitely a major takeaway for me. What about you, Darylise? Well, I'm so glad that you said that about making mistakes because actually today I sent an email to someone and I did not proofread it. And there was a a typo 
it, like I had gotten someone's name wrong in the email and it was a very unfortunate autocorrect situation. And it's just very, very humbling and helpful to remember that, yeah, we're going to get things wrong. And it's certainly not intentional, but also, you know, I have to be responsible for my impact. And you know, we talked about that in prior episodes. So yeah, thank you for that. I, I can soften my self-judgment in this moment, but also be aware that it is important. It does matter. And I don't want to continually get things wrong, but I can get things wrong occasionally and take ownership of that and move forward differently. And I love what you said about the fluidity because I've experienced that in my in my own personal life as well as professionally. But I think the things that really stood out to me from this episode were not expecting people to be experts on a topic just because they have a specific experience. And I think that that is something that people often find themselves in the position if they hold an underrepresented identity, whether it be LGBTQ identity or another underrepresented identity of being like the quote unquote token person in the room, right? Like people asking them questions about like, oh, well, tell me about the trans experience. And the person's like, I'm not actually trans. (laughs) Like, I don't actually know the answer to that. And even if I were, I still might not have all the answers for you or want to be the one to provide all of the answers. So I think that is something I'm continually aware of. And then also just the lasting scars that judgment can leave. I, I know some of the interviews with people who were treated badly as a result of their LGBTQ identities and other people's biases, that the scars of that have been lasting and they've had real ramifications on the trajectories of people's careers and on the trajectories of people's lives. And so that's just something that I always want to be mindful of is what am I doing to make it a safer world for generations that are coming forward so that they don't have the experiences that so many of their predecessors have. And I think that's something I wanted to talk to you all about today. I know this came up a lot in the interview with James Barnes, the trans coach, but he was talking about youth and the importance of youth being able to really envision a future for themselves. And I'm so curious, how do you all conceive of moving forward differently for future generations in this area? First off, this is later on mentioned by our Q&A expert, but I am really hopeful about the younger generations to come, even more so than my generation. And I am younger on the younger end of the scale. I really think that these younger generations that are growing up have a certain amount of confidence just in them from the jump. And I don't want to ignore the fact that youth today still struggle with confidence. That is there for sure. But just comparing some of their attitudes, there almost feels like a sense of here are things that our generation will and will not accept. And like outright bigotry and exclusive behavior is not something that I see a ton of from youth. So I think as someone being inspired by what I am seeing by the youth, it makes me want to do better. That is the open-mindedness that this person who has less life experience than me can have, then I need to be looking at myself and asking, why don't I have an equal amount of open-mindedness? So I think really I'm inspired by these younger generations and by that inspiration, I want to do better. And I do see myself doing better when I learn 
from youth. So I think what it really comes down to for me is being willing to, in certain areas, specifically like the LGBTQIA plus discussions where you see these younger generations being more open, I think at times we need to let the youth lead and we need to let them teach us some things and we need to be open to that as generations that are older than some of these newer generations. So yeah, being taught by those who are getting it better than maybe the rest of us is something that I'm certainly trying to open myself up to because I admire the openness that comes from a lot of the youth that I encounter. So that would be my approach. These past few years have really illuminated how important it is to care for our health. The place where I go for all my health and wellness supplements is Vita Supreme. Vita Supreme uses all organic ingredients and has a wide range of supplement options that can help with immune support, heart health, energy, mental health, pain relief, sleep, anti-aging, digestion, diabetes, and more. Their products have helped me reduce joint pain and increase vibrancy. And if you read their online testimonials, you'll find glowing endorsements from their customers who at every age and stage of life are feeling better than ever. Vita Supreme believes that health radiates from the inside out, and I can tell you from personal experience that their supplements have made a positive difference in my life. To receive 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. Your discount will be applied at checkout. There's no code required. Also, as a special offer with your first order, you can receive a free 15-minute coaching session with one of their wellness experts to find out more about what you can do to improve your health and your habits. Just send your name and preferred contact information to support at vitasupreme.com. Once again, to get 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. And to receive your free coaching session, email support at vitasupreme.com and tell them the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. Through innovative and dynamic educational initiatives, Temple University's Fox School of Business provides students with real-world, local, and global business opportunities. At the Fox School of Business, you can choose from a wide range of undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs. Whatever your academic and professional path, you'll learn practical strategies for workplace success at a university that is committed to encouraging and respecting diversity in all forms and perspectives. The Fox School of Business, which includes the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, has built an inclusive, welcoming environment where everyone is emboldened to reach their full potential. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu slash DDP for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workplace. 
So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu ddp for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workforce with options for students and professionals at every stage of life, including undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs, the Fox School of Business has something just right for you. So make sure to check out fox.temple.edu ddp to learn more. What about you, Zach? I'd say I'm prideful of the fact that I feel the youth get it and understand a lot more and are a lot more open to others than I think generations come before. And I think it's there's a lot of factors that play into it. I think in general media content that we see now, it's showing so much more diversity than it used to. My niece had her fifth birthday party and she has a best friend with two moms. And I never saw that when I was 5, 10, even 15. So I love that the exposure is there and that it seems that it's being well-received. I think adults, especially those who aren't quite as open, they're fearful when they see certain commercials and they think it's going to corrupt children and change minds and this, that, and the other. And I think we're seeing that that's not the case. And I love that. So I'm I'm very, very happy that for the most part, for at least from, from my point of view, Youth are very accepting. They don't want to put up with the ignorance that they see older generations still going through. And I think that bodes really well for our future. I love that you touched on representation and just how it really does create environments where acceptance and inclusion is a lot easier (laughs) because of that exposure. This episode made me think a lot about barriers to belonging and a lot about the phenomenon of passing. And, you know, I know you were talking about the visibility, but LGBTQ identity is one that can a lot of times be hidden, right, among different people. And I know that that can lead people to feel a split sense of self, especially in the workplace. Who they are personally might feel very different than who they are professionally, and they might conceal aspects of themselves in order to quote unquote belong or get along or fit in. And one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is that I think it can be very easy to tell people, well, just don't conceal yourself and show up fully as you. But I think if people fear for their safety or their job security or think it might impact their financial future, it's not easy to make that choice between being out and being open or or remaining in the closet. And, and so I think a lot about the consequences of compartmentalization versus the consequences of coming out and, and how people might actively feel a need to hide or just choose not to disclose. And like all of these different elements of visibility and invisibility, I would never want to prescribe if someone's listening to this, what they should or should not do. I think that has to be an individual choice and people are best equipped to identify their own experience. But I'm just curious if you all have any suggestions or insights or words for someone who maybe can quote unquote pass, but is dealing with some of the consequences of that. Or if you have words of wisdom for allies who are seeing those consequences and their loved ones, like how do we show up for one another to create more safe and authentic spaces? 
There was a quote that AC folks said, and it is that it is hard to hate up close. I think for allies, it's really important for us to put ourselves in proximity with people who are having these lived experiences. And it was also talked about that like we shouldn't be looking to people living these experiences to educate us. If they want to by choice, great. If not, Google exists. But I think what's important is that we need to constantly be working to surround ourselves, not just with being up close to the people living these experiences, but being up close with the content that we take in, the books that we read, the podcasts we listen to, where we get our information from. Because I think that when you have someone who is struggling with compartmentalizing their identities and maybe they can pass, but that puts a lot of stress on them as well because it's just another layer of complexity that is added to their identity. I think it's our job as allies to really try to understand and empathize as much as possible with why that would be hard. And specifically with the the passing component, I think there are several different identities outside of even just the LGBTQIA plus community where some people might pass. I'm thinking right now as a biracial woman, I'm thinking of the the discussion of passing from back in the day with people who were lighter complexion, but were black, but they could pass as white. And that's a discussion that has still carried on. And it's not to compare the two at all, but it's the idea that passing, whether by choice or just imposed on us by society can be a stressful dynamic to all people's identities. And so specifically speaking to the allies, I think it's important that understanding why that would be difficult, understanding why just existing with this being your life experience would be difficult. That's our job as allies to inform ourselves and getting close to not just the people living these experiences, but close to the the resources out there that inform us. And then really step back and question like, okay, as a human being, where can I identify areas where that would be, if I had to do that, that would be difficult for me. And that's all getting back to this idea of empathy. So Zach, I'd love to hear what you you have to say on that. Yeah. And it's interesting. And you related to an area that I think of when I hear passing I think of the same thing, black folks who had lighter skin. But when I think of someone in the LGBTQIA plus space who was quote unquote passing, I think it's more important for that person to speak up and to be louder because they are now a representation that goes against what some folks assumed LGBTQIA plus looked like. And now you're showing them that, you know, it it doesn't just look like that. It looks like me too. And even though you didn't know I was what I am, I am. So hopefully that now opens folks' minds and they become more tolerant of everybody else. So I kind of think of it in that concept. Both of you made such really important points because there is privilege that comes with being a person whose marginalized identities are not visible. And I think that it's important to acknowledge the privilege and the influence that someone might have if they're in that position. And also it can come with a sense of pressure or a feeling of otherness or alienation. Like I know a lot of times we'll talk to people who are like, yeah, I'm the first person like me in this space, or I'm the only person who holds my particular identity in this space. And and I think 
that tension of privilege and influence and access versus the pain of concealment or the pain of feeling like one has to constantly be exposing and coming out as themselves. I think that it's all of those things and that every person's experience is going to be very different and people's personalities are going to be very different. So there are certain people who might really relish the opportunity to be in different rooms where there might not be a lot of people who quote unquote hold their same identities because they love being able to have those moments of really speaking up or that shock value or whatever, being able to be the person that blazes trails. And then there are some people who that same experience and those same situations are going to feel really eviscerating on the inside. And most people are going to have spectrum experiences of these things. So I think we can't know what someone's going to experience in that situation. But to both of your points, I think for allies to imagine themselves in those situations can only positively impact their ability to be there for friends and loved ones who might really need their support. Thank you for that, Darylise. Now, was there anything that didn't make it into the episode that you'd wanted to include? Yeah, I think so. I mean, mostly we spoke with, or I would say, I, I can't think of anyone I spoke with who was not in favor of bringing their authentic selves forward. And so while in the episode, we did really try to make it abundantly clear that disclosure shouldn't be mandated, I did feel we prioritized voices of those who are out and wanting to be and feel very invested in being visible in the fullness of their identities. And I really wonder what it would have been like to include some voices of those who haven't come out or who have come out and had some really negative experiences of that, just different things like that. But I felt that would have been hard to do because A, those people might not want to share their experiences if they don't want to come out, right? And B, this is a public platform. So it would have put us in the position of outing people who are not currently out. So like that was one that I didn't really feel like we could touch on with integrity, but it is something that didn't make it in that I would have wanted to see in. What about you, Azaria? Did Was there anything that you'd have wanted to see included? Yeah. What you just said is spot on. I wonder if there's a way to ever have future guests speak anonymously and then get like voice camouflaging technology and maybe people in our close circles who trust that process who aren't out might have been willing to take that approach. But again, just wanting to have integrity with how you approach something like that, because it's really delicate. But I would have loved to hear the other side where someone's talking about what it currently feels like in real time to be in a space where you cannot be out. Another thing that I would love to talk about, because I think that specifically in the LGBTQIA plus discussions, we do not talk enough about intersectionality And I would have loved to have this episode have more discussion around individuals with compounding intersectionalities to their identities, specifically black and brown LGBTQIA plus individuals and really honing in on that area. Because I know that there was a really interesting time where during the summer of 2020, everything happening with George Floyd, and then also like it was overlapping with Pride Month 
There were a lot of discussions that I sat in and listened to from black and brown individuals who are part of the LGBTQIA plus communities who really had this like, they were torn between which parts of their identities to fight for in that moment and what shows up first. And that's real. So talking about wearing different masks in different rooms, well, that only becomes even more complicated when you have several different layers of intersectionality as a part of your identity. So I would have loved to have taken a deeper dive into sort of those areas. Yeah, I feel like that is so important. And that is something that comes up quite a lot for folks about who am I in this particular space and what identities come to the forefront and what identities are the ones that require more amplification and intention and allyship in this moment or in this space. And I feel like those are such nuanced and important conversations to have. And just one thing I want to mention, I know in season one, we did some episodes about LGBTQ plus identity. And I had the opportunity to interview the parent of a trans child. And this parent themselves is trans and did not want to go on the record as giving their name or their pronouns. But I know that that parent felt very empowered by their child's coming out to look at their own experiences and their own identity. And so even though this particular parent did not feel that they could be visibly out because they're in a supposedly cis heterosexual marriage and like all of those things, they felt like some part of them was given life and energy and vitality in their championing of their child and being able to go to different events and things with their child and celebrate their child's experience as a trans person, even though they couldn't really fully embrace their own experience of that. And that really made an impact on me. Wow, that's powerful. And I feel like I'm picking up a pattern here, folks. (laughs) Moral of the story, the youth we should be letting them leave. (laughs) No, youth are amazing though. I really do think we could learn a lot more from them than we sometimes allow ourselves to. So that's awesome. And before we get any deeper, let's move into our expert interview section of the Q&A episode. For this episode, I had a chance to sit down with Kelly Clark. And in the main episode, you'll hear me introducing Kelly as working at Aon United. However, between the interviews that we did in preparation for this season and the release of the season, Kelly actually moved positions and she now works at Emerson as the Vice President of Culture, Employee Experience, and Employee Communications. And Kelly shared with me that it was a transition that she made because she wanted to have the maximum impact in diversity and culture. And she felt like Emerson was a place where they're really embarking on massive change and it was exciting to be a part of. So even though it was a challenging transition, she has a hurt heart at having to leave her beloved Aon United. She felt like she could really be part of shaping DEI innovation. So we'll move into that interview with Kelly, who is Emerson's Vice President of Culture, Employee Experience, and Employee Communications at Emerson. And then Zach Azaria and I will pick back up and talk about it. Demystify diversity, making work safe for you and me. Shoulder to shoulder, we embark. If 
fight the light, descend the dark. Let's embrace one another. Single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other through? Kelly, thank you so much for joining me again. I'm really grateful to have you. I think the first question that I want to ask, because the last time that we sat down for a conversation, you were with Aeon and now you've transitioned to Emerson. So I wanted to ask a little bit about how that transition happened and if you could share about your current role. Sure. And really great to be back with you and continuing this conversation. There's so much to talk about. And as I continue to meet people in the industry, in this space, everyone is continuing work at solving how we continue to invest in the employee experience in human beings who are also employees doing work in the world and bringing out the best in those folks and and ultimately getting performance out of our organizations as a result of that. One of the things I get asked a lot by colleagues or employees who are early in their career is like, how did you decide to be who you who you are and how did you decide about this job and what's the equation? And what I would say is, I wish it was as simple as following a yellow brick road and life is not like that. But as we, I think, as companies continue to become more aware about the benefit of investing in our people and elevating the employee as a stakeholder equal to the other stakeholders that we're delivering for. There is just a desire to do this work across the world. And so Emerson had approached me. Now, speaking on behalf of Emerson, we're on a journey to really redefine the company. What once was a 60 business conglomerate, we're now a pure play out emotion company. And as we've been in this portfolio transformation and company identity transformation, there was a need for somebody to focus on the employee experience and building out the communication programming globally and be a part of the culture change that's happening. And so I was captivated by the journey at the moment in time where Emerson is and very much felt committed to the work that I was doing at Aon, but knew it was in good hands, knew that they were on a path and felt that I could uniquely come and influence the movement of maybe the culture and employee experience for Emerson. So I decided to make the change. It was a very difficult decision for me. It took a lot of reflection and processing, but life is a funny way of unfolding in that way. And so I'm following it along and enjoying the journey. I'm so grateful that you spoke about journey. I'm grateful that you spoke about it not being a yellow brick road, right? Our our life paths. My experience is, is that the work that we do shifts us, right? It impacts us in various ways. And so what I want today may be different than the me of five years from now with a ton of different experiences, et cetera. And I'm wondering, as you look back at your career in this space of DEIB, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, what are some of the impacts that the work has had on you in shaping and shifting you as a person and also maybe your career path? When I was early in my career, actually, I've been married twice, once to a man, now to a woman. 
And that having both of those experiences in the workplace and deciding about coming to work and sharing about what I did on the weekend and who my family was and what we were thinking about and what we were doing. It is a completely different experience doing that in a heteronormative experience and then as part of the LGBTQ community. And again, back to this idea of being on a journey, I didn't really think initially when I started in this work that I would be shaping some of the organizational decisions that were made that would foster the sense of inclusiveness and openness to accepting people in their journeys. That never crossed my mind. But as a human being and as an employee, as a person coming to work and trying to make decisions, when somebody asked me what I did on the weekend or about my family, and knowing how different those two experiences have been for me, it heightened my awareness into the way that we assume about people without the unconscious assumptions that we're making about what it is like to answer what feels like very maybe basic or simple questions, but what that requires of somebody in terms of trust and vulnerability if they don't know if they're going to be accepted or if they are in a safe space or if who they are is good enough. And I'm putting that in quotes for whoever they're talking to. And so it was that personal journey then that when I found myself in a position of leadership over how we drive diversity, how we foster a culture of inclusion, how we ensure that we're extending this idea of belonging to people, how important that is in the starting place of what somebody's ability to perform and deliver fully into an organization is. Because if I am not sure if you accept me and if I belong, how can I tap into my own sense of creativity and innovation and risk-taking because I'm using all my mental and emotional energy to just calibrate throughout the day. And so I think it is critically important that we understand all of the little micro ways that this affects people in their everyday. And I'll tell you a quick story and then we can take the conversation wherever you like to go. But at a company that I was at, I was new and it's not Emerson, I'll just say that, but I was new, a new employee. And somebody saw a wedding ring on my hand and asked me what my husband did. And in that, there's an assumption that I have a husband. And actually, at the time, I had a wife. I still have my wife. But it's just even that little awareness of how we're phrasing what we're asking and how we engage with each other. And it isn't something that we need to feel shame about, but it is something that we absolutely do need to be aware of because the way that we ask those questions and engage with each other either invites someone in or it puts up this wall. And what happens from there is really dependent upon our ability to invite in and to invite openness. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it's so clear that in that instance, If the person had just asked, oh, what does your partner do? Tell me more about your significant other or whatever they they said, it would have been a very different conversation. And I'm curious, Kelly, what are some tangible things that people can do 
to improve their relationships with inclusion and safety building, specifically for LGBTQ plus folks to feel more empowered to be open about their identities at work? This is something that is absolutely on the minds, especially of folks who are early in their career who are wondering if who they are is going to limit their ability to influence and if they're going to be limited in their leadership. And so one of the things that I just decided early on was that I was going to be very open about my family and who I loved and how all of that is part of the whole package that you get with me. So if I could speak to people who are in positions of leadership, that's a risk. You're taking a risk, but there's an ability that you have to unlock for those who are coming behind us. And when I think about the journey of the LGBTQ community, and this only in the United States alone, we are standing on the shoulders of giants, if you will, in terms of what we have available to us today. And so when I fell in love with my now wife, we got to choose if we wanted to get married legally. And that was an option that was available to us. But I have neighbors across the street who will tell you their story and how long they were together, how long they were married in love, and then how long they've been married by law. And it just shows that while we have freedoms and we're still continuing to fight for those freedoms, and thank goodness we have laws that are continuing to be signed so that we can continue to preserve that, we still have work to do. And this journey isn't that old. It comes down to privilege in a sense for me, where when you have a seat at the table that you've gotten because of some form of privilege, whether it's based on your ethnicity or your gender or who you love, we can use that privilege to create more spaces at the table for those who aren't invited there yet. And I think that is the work to do. So when I think about asking about someone's family, it saying something like, do you have kids? You don't know if that's a journey that someone's on and maybe there's pain in that journey and maybe there's a choice in that journey and there's all kinds of things, but maybe asking what keeps you busy outside of work and then letting the answer guide where you take that conversation. And maybe it'll be about kids and maybe it'll be about hobbies and maybe it'll be about who they love and who their family is and letting the the answer sort of guide where your conversation goes. There are ways that you just become more aware of, can I invite someone in and check my bias almost or check my microaggressions or check the things that are going on within me because of who I am in the way that I engage with each other? And how can I honor who I'm talking with in this conversation versus how can I just put my assumptions onto this person? I love that. And I love that that particular skill set of honoring someone and not superimposing our preconceptions is useful both in a workplace setting and not. But you had spoken about risk. And I, I'm curious if you could speak a little bit, Kelly, to how being open about one's identity, whether that be gender identity or trans experience or sexual orientation or who they love, How might that function differently in a workplace setting than in other settings? I think, again, we are getting better. And today it feels like we're living in a world where we have more access and there is more openness. 
I remember the story of a former neighbor of mine telling me when she worked for a fairly large U.S. company, she got pregnant and was afraid to tell her boss that she was pregnant because she knew she would lose her job. And so I think that there are groups of folks that for various reasons have always been navigating this like risk-taking assessment of how much do I share? And it all comes back to, am I going to trust who I am with this person who has some sort of authority over me? And will what I trust them with, will that open access for me? Will it grant me more opportunities? Will it enable me to grow or will it shut me down? And I think this is why we have to become, again, I keep saying aware, but more aware, but also there's work to do in the systemic piece of how some of these things function. And we need to continue to create policies and ensure that we are making our organizations places where the fullness of who we are as human beings is not only accepted, but that we're enabling the growth and the development and the fullness of those people to come out in their work, in their leadership, in the way that we promote, advance, and continue to see the full potential of them as a human being and not limit someone's growth because of who they are. I'm so glad that you mentioned the systemic piece because we've been talking a little bit about individual and interpersonal interactions, but I think that organizations can create inclusive structures proactively and put policies into place. So can you talk a little bit about some of the the organizational policies that you've been part of spearheading or support and endorse that for the leaders listening to this call, they might think about implementing those at their own organizations? Yeah, there are a lot. And again, so much work to do, but things like ensuring that leave policies are inclusive. So having a maternity policy and a paternity policy and maybe an adoption policy, maybe or maybe not, there's a transitioning at work policy. There's all these things that are affecting people's lives. And if we have inclusive policies that enable them to then go through that full experience, whatever it might be, with the support of the organization, there's a commitment there. There's a sense of investment there. There's a employee experience there that is affirming of who I am as a person that enables me to experience the fullness of the benefits that are available to other people who maybe aren't like me. But it levels the equity piece of the DEI work that we need to do. Some of the other things that my mind is kind of going a million miles a minute here, but I'm thinking about even the way that we translate information. So when we have employees who either speak a different language or have a sight impairment, or maybe they need some kind of translation or they need some kind of assistance. How do we make all of the ways that we engage accessible for all of the people that we are engaging with? And the thoughtfulness behind that is important. And so most of my work for the almost past decade has been at global organizations And language is an incredibly important factor that can either completely cut off a group of people or completely invite a group of people in. And so 
the use of pronouns and signaling when we share our pronouns is another way that we've driven change and showed allyship and normalized this idea that we all have a way that we prefer to be referred to and that I can share that with you and you can honor that when I do. So I think it's big and small. And I often talk a lot about this work is big work that needs to be done from policy and legislation level all the way down to day-to-day interactions. But a lot of the work is in that day-to-day space. It's very practically continuing to check all of the things that we do and take opportunities when we get them to make ourselves more inclusive and to make our teams more inclusive. Hey listeners, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And I wanted to share with you some of the great things we're doing in the DEI space. Since the beginning of 2020, Myself, Darylise, and our DEI team have facilitated numerous corporate trainings, engaging workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more, both virtual and in person. To find out how you can work with us, whether you are an individual or representing an organization, school, corporation, or any other type of group seeking diversity, equity, and inclusion education, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash DEI services to send us a message or to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 300 people, becoming a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your productivity, profitability, and interpersonal relationships. So connect with us at DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash DEI services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And don't forget the workbook too. Happy learning. The other thing that I talk a lot about with leaders is that sometimes I think as leaders, we feel like we have to have the answers for everything. And so we're almost afraid to enter into a conversation with the fear of saying the wrong thing or not having the answer or misstepping. And I say the wrong thing and get my words tangled up and do something wrong every day. I mean, we're all on a journey and we're all learners in continued evolution of the human experience and how we are parents and how we're fellow co-workers. But when, when I think about the role that leaders play in organizations, I think sometimes as an employee, I just wanted somebody to acknowledge that I'm having an experience, that something in the world has gone on and it has affected me. And that the deliverable and the report and all of the things that we're driving are incredibly important. And also, I feel emotion because of something. So when the Dobbs decision came down, for example, from this from the Supreme Court, that made me as a woman feel incredibly sad. And I didn't want my leaders at work to fix anything because I knew that that was outside of their sphere. But I wanted somebody to see me in what I was experiencing that day. 
And so I do think there is a role for leaders to play, especially now, to acknowledge that there are a lot of things that are continuing to put pressure and to cause pain on the human experience in this world, and that we don't check those things at the door when we come to work every day. We actually bring them and we can hold space for what is possible that day and we don't have to have the answers for it. That was such a rich response and so much in there that stood out to me. I think just one thread that I would love a little feedback on, Kelly. One of the people that we interviewed for this episode, the trans coach, James Barnes, was speaking about how often individuals, and he was speaking specifically about trans individuals because that's the population that he serves, but are expected to be representatives and educators for LGBTQ plus competency. And something that you said about like, I don't need to have all the answers, but also that people are not necessarily, even if they do have answers, it's not necessarily that person's job. And I know you're here voluntarily speaking to us about your role in DEI and and you're bringing your experiences as a member of the LGBTQ plus community. But I think that's different than someone who just happens to be an employee with an LGBTQ plus identity. So can you talk about like, how do we make space for people and honor them while not then delving into aspects or trying to utilize that person as an expert in a way that they might not want to be an expert? Yeah. And I think this is where the trust factor comes in and the importance of building authentic teams and safe teams comes in because as a leader of a global team and many global teams, I can think back even just over the past year, maybe two years. I mean, we continue to hear stories of Black men in particular who are murdered. And as many mothers on my team who have Black sons come to work the next day, they don't want to educate the team on the continued pain and sense of helplessness that they are experiencing. But what I learned from them is that they did want me to acknowledge that today was a hard day and that they may need mental health space they may need to move a meeting. They may need something different than they thought they were going to need the day before because of the toll that this continued story is playing in their lives. And I think that that is the way that we all feel when we represent or we're a part of a group where there's a continued reminder that there's still work to do in this world in the acceptance and the love and the belief that every human being is whole and worthy. And so whether it's the, there's a shooting in Colorado Springs, I mean, the stories, stories around the world continue to remind us of that work. And I think we have just a role to play in that we don't want to, especially in moments of pain, try to take somebody's experience in that and make them the one who has to then educate and soothe and make it okay. But we do need to acknowledge that these stories 
are deeply affecting people and that their experiences, whether we can relate fully or not, are totally valid. And that giving space and giving people moments to just sit in what that emotion is, is okay and is honoring to them. And I think when we go through some kind of even great experiences, we still want to be seen and acknowledged in that and just have somebody understand that as a human being, I'm affected by all of these things. And I just want you to acknowledge that about me. And so I think that you're absolutely right. There are ways that we can do our own work and we can get curious about the experiences of others and other communities. And I think as human beings, as part of kind of this human community of global citizens, that is work that we should always be doing is to read from other authors, listen to podcasts, listen to the stories, get curious about communities of people and believe them. You mentioned listeners and curiosity and believing people, and you had spoken about your own sadness, your own feelings after Roe vs. Wade was overturned. And I think that'd be a great segue into the listener questions. And one of the first questions that came in was from an anonymous listener who asked, how does the recent overturn of Roe versus Wade impact folks of the LGBTQ plus community as it relates to the workplace? Does it impact employer relations with their LGBTQ plus employees? So I think one of the things that we're starting to see from a talent pool perspective And this is just another reminder of the power in the collective groups of people continuing to be activists and allies. We're seeing candidates wanting to know what companies are doing or what they did as a result of some of these legislative or Supreme Court decisions or whatever it might be. They want to know what side of the coin does the company sit before they'll agree to take a role. And I think we'll see more of that, but asking the questions about what did your company do? What does your leadership team think? Those are ways that we can continue to be advocates and allies and and get curious about what companies are doing to continue to advance some of the human rights needs while we continue to navigate some of this from a political perspective. I think a lot of companies found is that separate from abortion specifically, there were benefits that were offered that if that benefit wasn't available in a state that you that you lived in, there were benefits available for you to go get a procedure elsewhere. And so from my reading, some companies have decided to include and remind employees, like these are benefits, this is we will reimburse you, we'll do this, we'll do that. And so you did see a lot of that changing. Now Again, I think benefits for transitioning procedures are also a part of that where companies are now being more inclusive about making sure that those kinds of procedures are a part of their benefits packages that are offered to employees. And so you are seeing companies take interest making sure that their policies and their packages are inclusive. And I think we have continued work to do. Yeah, I mean, I think hopefully we get to a place where we're not continuing to debate 
about some of these rights. But in the meantime, it does cause a reevaluation of what is offered. It causes a reevaluation of what is needed. And as long as candidates are continuing to ask the questions like, what are you doing? What is available? That continues to put pressure on organizations to make sure that they are doing what they can do and making sure that they're offering what they need to be offering for folks. Oh, gosh, thank you so much. There's a question that Nikolai wrote in from Portland that says, former LGBTQ plus identifying colleagues that I have had have confided in me that they like to work in sales or other roles where productivity and value to an employer is clearly and obviously defined as a means to avoid discrimination. How can LGBTQ plus folks in different types of roles stand out as quote unquote stars within their organizations? Gosh, I hope we see a world in my lifetime where we don't have to think about things like this, where people are stars because they're stars and people are shining because they're shining and they're choosing jobs because they're interested in it and they're, and they're fulfilled. Again, I think that there is a expectation, I would say, on, on leaders to pull out the goodness in people. I think it is, again, it, it can feel risky. I think we've done a lot of work across a lot of corporate environments to make it less risky. But being who you are and making a choice to live authentically as who you are and, and then finding the people that see that in you and bring that out in you, whether that is in your professional life or your personal life, that is always how I've navigated. And so I can't say that every boss is going to be affirming and inclusive and your biggest champion. But as a woman, as a mom, as someone who was once a single mom, as someone who was a part of the LGBTQ community, I want to be celebrated and I want my work to stand on my own merit, not because I'm standing on some identity. And so I think that while our identities are incredibly important, I also think continuing to be committed to doing good work and putting good work in the world and letting that stand on its own right. And then finding leaders and mentors and people around you who recognize that good work and those good values and asking for continued support and feedback and assistance in growing your career because of the good work that you're putting in the world is the way to go. Because I think we can debate all day around who we include and who we don't include and certain personality styles and all of those things are important. But there's this, for me, it's just a little bit more simple to think about it from that other perspective. I love that, that you brought that perspective into the conversation because at the end of the day, people should be doing what they love and shining their gifts and their lights and their talents as humans. But you mentioned the word values. And I'm so curious, Curtis from New York City wrote in with a question, how can I help properly educate colleagues and direct reports about diversity, equity, and inclusion towards LGBTQ plus colleagues when they claim that their religious beliefs do not allow for their acceptance? So I think that's like a very challenging question, but I'd love to hear your take on that. Let's see if I can do it a little bit of justice because I get it. I totally get it. One of the things that I think we have enough data and research about now is that diverse teams 
deliver differentiated results. And having a variety of perspectives and a variety of opinions and a variety of voices in the room, it ultimately makes that equation about the sum of the parts being bigger than the whole. And so I think that if for whatever reason, your religion prevents you from embracing someone's choice of who they love or how they live. You know, in some cases, I think if you don't believe in gay marriage, then don't get gay married and let everybody else live their lives. And also knowing that there is a element of having a diversity of opinions and people and perspectives can make you a better person, regardless of if you fully believe what other people believe. I think that there is work to do there as a human being to see the value in an individual and a human's contribution without you feeling like you have to put your own judgment on their choice and who they are. That is, (laughs) it's a lot. Yeah. But I think for me, who am I to talk about someone else's experience in this world? Who am I? I have my own journey and I have my own pain and I've had my own mountaintop experiences. And what I would say about those for me is like, they are wholly and entirely true. All of it, the good, the bad, the unbelievable. And I feel like some of those things were choices I made. Some of those things were not choices. They're just who I am. And I'm grateful for the people who have seen all of that in me and said, I accept you and you're good and you're whole. And we all deserve from each other. I don't have to agree with every other person's choices, but I can believe that there is goodness in every human being. And that that goodness is ought to be honored and to be celebrated. And so I don't want to simplify that because I think religion and religious beliefs and convictions are all very real things and I get it. And I also think that if we get curious enough, we can find the good things that a human being can bring into the world. We did a couple episodes in season two of the Demystifying Diversity podcast that we'll put links to in the show notes, but specifically focusing on the ways in which religion can be used as an invitation to inclusion or as a way of excluding people. Same religion, same faith, different interpretations. And so I think that might be valuable as a resource. And the other thing I'll share is one of my majors in college was religious studies. I majored in English religious studies and minored in history. And one of the things that I found is that actually oftentimes people don't really know their own faiths. I believe that all faiths are an invitation to love and an invitation to inclusion and incorporation and how that plays out might look very, very different, but I don't see anything incompatible about religiosity and acceptance or inclusion. I do, however, think that sometimes when people 
haven't delved deeply into any of their identities that they hold, including their religion, there may be some misinterpretation that happens. And so, yeah, like I love Curtis's question. And I, and I also think that we live in a nation, if as Curtis is writing in from New York and the U.S. ostensibly is a place where there is a separation between church and state. I don't know that it always works out that way, but just knowing that as employers, the obligation is not the same as an, an institution of worship. And so, yeah, really beautiful and complicated question. And thank you so much for your answer. Yeah. And I think you're right about the idea of love. I guess for me, I can spend my time trying to pick apart why maybe what I believe does or doesn't make somebody fit that box, or I can spend my time getting curious about how I see love and light in the world. And I don't want to simplify, I don't mean to simplify it, but I think that there's just some choices to be made about where do you want to spend your energy and where do you want to spend your time? Oh my gosh, absolutely. So if she writes in with a question, as a manager, how can I be sure to be fully inclusive of colleagues and customers of all gender expressions and identities when it seems that new titles and identifiers are being used each and every day? So I have a almost teenage daughter and I will tell you that this idea of gender and identities and sexual orientation and gender orientation, the next generation gives me a lot of hope that this isn't going to be as maybe complicated as it feels like it has been, or maybe confusing for some people or like wanting to get it right again. And I think watching my daughter who has watched her friends transition, who has friends who would identify as non-binary, who has hetero friends and gay friends and all, all the friends and watching just how fluid that generation is across all of the areas. And just, it's like, it is what it is today. The friend identifies this way and the next year they identify a different way. And she's just goes with who and what they want to be called, who and what they want to love. And there's just a little bit of a lightness and a freedom in watching how that kind of goes with her group of friends. And so I think I would say that is something that we can learn from the next generation about. It's okay to get it wrong. If you knew someone who identified as she, her, and now they prefer he and him, apologize for your misstep and keep going and honor what they've asked of you. If you're not sure, I always say my preferred this or that is this or that. And what is yours? And how can I honor you? And just normalizing that we can have conversations about these things and we can get curious with each other. We can share information with each other, but it's okay. It's okay not to know. It's okay to be curious. It's okay to kind of go with what someone's preferences are and you don't have to have all the answers and all the background and all need you don't need to know everything about it if someone tells you what a preference is or who they are accept that and honor that within them i have seen we've had different transitioning policies and programs at at various places that i've worked and i think those can be very helpful 
But I do think that a lot of times this comes down to each person just being willing to see the the other person in that experience and meet them where they are. And so being open and being curious and stating your intentions and letting someone know, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm referring to you. Somebody even asked me like, what is your wife's last name? Just wanting to make sure, not assuming that we had the same last name and just normalizing that we can ask these things about one another and it, it helps us engage more authentically. Kelly, we have one last listener question. Full disclosure, this is a listener, but it's also our dear Stuart, who works with the Demystifying Diversity podcast, wrote in with a question for this episode and said, sorry, dear Elise, I really wanted to ask this one. So I'm going to. No sorry is necessary, Stuart. So glad you asked a question. But Stu writes, one of the speakers spoke about the quote unquote commodification of the LGBTQ plus community as part of a larger point they were making. That in itself, though, feels like it's worth expanding on. How has the LGBTQ plus community been commodified by its straight slash cisgendered counterparts? How does this extend into the work environment and what can be done about it? I'm not sure I'm going to answer this in a way that gives Stuart what he's hoping for here, but I will tell you a little bit about what I've learned from my wife in this space. So every June, everything becomes rainbow, rainbow logos, and we have rainbow M&Ms and rainbow this and rainbow that, and you have all these rainbow things. And I think at first pass, everyone's like, oh, isn't it great that look at all this support for the LGBTQ community. And my wife is an artist and a bit more of an introspective and has been in this, in the journey of identifying as an LGBTQ community member a lot longer than I have. And we got talking about this idea that people are getting on the bandwagon and it's like, we have the token, you find the gay person and then that becomes the token brochure cover picture and you find the trans person and that be they become the token trans person. And I think that all of this is well-intended work that people are doing. If we go back to where we started from as this being a journey, this, I do believe that most of this has come out of a well-intended place. But I think if I just look across the evolution and the work that still needs to be done, what Carly taught me is that what is also important is what happens between the months of July and May. So what are companies doing when there isn't something to sell or something to promote or something to advertise or a flag to wave? And making sure that we talked a little bit about values, like making sure that what's actually underneath is aligned to what is being promoted in June and during Pride Month. And so I think that that for me was such a good lesson about just being intentional about where we invest our money, businesses that we support, whether it's a small business or a woman-owned business or a diverse business or an LGBTQ business, making sure that we're finding and investing in and holding up the companies where and the people that we know have the values of inclusion, of creating a sense of belonging, of driving diversity, of driving equity. 
It's like what you were, what I was taught, I guess, when I was a kid is that it's more important what you do when no one is looking than what you do when everyone is looking. And so I think for me, that is how I think about how we promote and tell stories. And I'm more than willing to share my story. And I think a lot of people are, but we need to make sure that we're sharing our stories and we're asking people to share their stories with honor and with respect and with an appreciation for the journey that has come with whoever that person is. And that we're doing it out of a place of actually doing this work day in and day out and for the bigger, broader, greater good of humanity. I love that Stu asked that question. I thought your answer, <laughs> like real, I mean, I was almost brought to tears by your answer. So thank you to you, Kelly. And thank you to Carly for that modeling. Is there anything that either the listeners or I didn't ask you that you'd want to share today? We covered a lot of ground. So maybe just a caveat, these are my personal opinions and beliefs. And so I am a fellow sojourner on this journey with all of us and grateful to share a little bit about what I've picked up along the way and also grateful to continue to learn from you and, and your guests and the work that you're doing in the world as well. Hey, listeners, Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you've tuned in to season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. You probably know by now that we've partnered with Temple University's Fox School of Business to bring you this special season dedicated to DEI in the workplace. With that in mind, we ask that you send us your work-related DEI questions by calling 844-888-8148. Just leave a message with your question or send us a note through our website, www.demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. As always, we'll be joined by some amazing guest experts and thought leaders who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. Again, the number is 844-888-8148 or message us through our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question may just make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Happy listening. If anyone listening wants to get in touch with you or if you want to share anything that you're doing or up to at Emerson or in your personal life, this is an opportunity to share if you choose to. One of the places I'm active right now, social media and the social world is a funny little place. One day, maybe I'll write a book, but that is not going to be this next year. But one of the places where I am fairly active is on LinkedIn. So you can find me there. I talk a lot about the work that I'm doing at Emerson a little bit about work I've done at Aon. And then I also try to spotlight and highlight people whose work has inspired me as well. So that would be the best place. But yeah, I'm more than happy to connect there. Wonderful. And we will put a link to your LinkedIn in the show notes so people can do that. I have one last question, which is at the beginning of this interview, I asked a little bit about why you do this work. And in your own personal opinion, why should others be invested in DEI in the workplace? For me, it really goes back to that idea that I was talking with you about just a little while ago that I think each of us, we have privileges, different privileges based on who we are. And if we are given a finite amount of time and a finite amount of influence, what better use of whatever the privilege is to create more space at our tables? And so for me, I, that is just how I feel about my work. 
about the broader work I'm doing in the world and who I am as a human being. And so for me, it does feel like an actual privilege all in itself that I get to marry all of these things into the formal work that I do. But even in in small ways, we all have some ability to continue to make space and invite others to our tables. And so that's what motivates me. And that's what I think. I think we all have an opportunity to do that. So why not? Why not do it? Why not make the table bigger? Oh my gosh, Kelly, thank you so much for your time, your transparency, your insights. This has been invaluable for me and I'm sure for our listeners. So thank you. You are most welcome. It was great to see you again. Can we move forward differently to foster greater equity? Even if we don't always understand fairness, we can and should demand. Let's embrace one another. Single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other through? Wasn't that incredible? I really, I always love doing a deep dive with one person who's studied an issue and its many manifestations and can really talk about it. So I loved that. Yeah, I love speaking with Kelly. And I'm so curious, Zach, in his area, how has either the main episode or just listening to Kelly and my conversation changed your understanding of the topic, if at all, or inspired you to take any action towards this issue, if at all? First, I just want to say that I love Kelly. Kelly is one of Sedwick's amazing board members, and she is always super involved, always gives such good input. So I'm super appreciative of her for being on on this episode and sharing so much of her expertise, but also her personal experiences. So Kelly's amazing. Kelly, if you're listening, you're amazing. I would say specifically... I wouldn't say that it changed a lot for me because I do have loved ones who identify as a part of the LGBTQI plus community. And I learn a lot from them. And also just working in DEI, I challenge myself to do the research around areas that I'm unfamiliar with. But when listening to you and Kelly's interview, something that really stood out to me is that leaders in general in organizations could be doing a better job at not always looking for the solution. And I was just having this conversation with a friend the other day about dating, for instance, and how sometimes specific partners in a relationship will have an issue and they instantly go to like, well, here's the solution and here's how we fix it. And sometimes somebody, the other partner just wants to be heard, right? And just wants to be validated in how they're feeling. And so when Kelly talked about the fact that leaders do have a responsibility to acknowledge the feelings and the realities that their employees are experiencing. I think that's something that definitely can be done better. And it's not always something where it's like, okay, well, great, let me call HR and figure out how we can fix this. And sometimes I just need to vent in a space that is safe and trust the fact that my leadership will not use that against me, but instead will listen. And then if I need a solution, if I need them to help me find a a way to fix the problem, great. But if not, I just want to trust that it's a safe space. So I think the importance of creating those safe spaces that really stuck with me in, in Kelly's interview. And I think just 
as leaders in organizations, always remembering that your employees are people first and that you would not have productivity and results and data to point to if your employees were consistently coming to work, not mentally being okay. And so it takes mentally being okay. And this was mentioned a lot throughout the main episode. When you're doing the mental gymnastics of having to hide a part of who you are, you're taking energy, mental resources away from like you actually being able to do your job and doing it well. So there is a ton of value in the emotional intelligence area. And I think that that is something that leaders and really all employees and and members of an organization should be aiming to have a greater understanding of emotional intelligence and how we can adopt that and then put that into practice in in our organizations. Yeah, I'm all about those words, safe space. I might even get a little t-shirt made and I'll I'll, I'll be a safe spacer or something I'll put on there. Because I think that was the main thing that that I pulled and know I will grow from is I want to try to help create safe spaces, even not in the corporate space, whether it be with clients or or folks I know that, that are in business. Because like you said, that the energy it takes to lessen yourself or to hide your true self, it makes you worse at work. So first off, for any business that's not providing safe space, you're getting less out of your your employee. But then I believe the the term was emotional safety. I think it was might have been even AC, I think, mentioned something about that. But the ability to show up and express in an authentic way and knowing it's okay to do that. I think that's the other key is a lot of folks will say, hey, we have a safe space. But if the person doesn't feel safe, they're not able to explore that. They're not actually able to, to even be themselves. So I think it's really, really important that not only we create these safe spaces, but there's those examples that showcase it's safe because I don't think it's appropriate for someone to have to guess if a space is safe or not, um, to have to, to tiptoe and deal with the burdens that come along with that. I think it's all about making it aware that this is a safe space from the jump. And yeah, I'm, I'm happy to try to be an advocate to do more to open eyes and, and make full eyes that they can breed and create safe spaces for the folks that they work with. I think sometimes people don't even realize the impact of an unsafe space until they enter into a safe space. Ultimately, the goal would be to get to a place where people can be fully themselves and also know that who they are can be fluid sometimes, right? And that's okay. One thing that I'm hoping that whoever's listening to this will do differently is to like invite themselves to ask themselves the same questions over time. So what I mean by that is one of the things that I was really inspired by in my conversation with Kelly was Kelly sharing about being married twice, once to a man and once to a woman and like that experience, right? And I feel like I've had similar experiences as someone who's been in relationships with people of different genders or my relationship with my race or with my physical health has changed over time. And I just would really invite listeners to continue to build self-reflection over time and to ask themselves consistent questions to see that their answers may shift and to create safety for themselves and those around them to be able to shift as they move forward and as they evolve and change and grow. Because I think the truths of who we are are dynamic. But yeah, Azaria and Zach, I'd love to know what you're hoping listeners might be able to do for themselves or for others. 
So one of the things I hope folks will take away, specifically talking to what I'll call our emerging allies or people that aren't quite yet ally status, but are like headed that direction. You know, Scott mentioned during this episode that we all make mistakes and we need to apologize and move on. And I think that's really important because I think a lot of people, they don't want to make a mistake. So they don't learn more. They don't ask questions, tough questions. You know, they don't really grow into becoming the best ally that they can be. And I think they need to just understand it's okay to make those mistakes, especially if you make a mistake and someone corrects you, just apologize, learn from that, grow and and move on versus going into a shell and deciding, all right, well, I'm not just going to keep helping these folks or I'm not going to continue to have these tough conversations. So I think Sky was spot on when they said we all make mistakes, just apologize and move on. And I think that's something that especially that burgeoning allies community all needs to take to heart. Kelly had said something beautiful when she was speaking. When you have a seat at the table that you got because of some sort of privilege, we can use that privilege to create seats at the table for people who haven't been invited to that table yet. And I think that that is the biggest takeaway is that there is privilege to be identified in many, if not all of these spaces, including in group privilege. You know, a cisgender gay white man has a different level of privilege than a black trans woman. So there is a need to identify our privilege my privilege as an ally when I go into these spaces? And then how can we use that privilege to help one another? And that I think is what being an ally specifically, that's what that is about, is recognizing where you have privilege and then recognizing how you can use it to help those around you who don't have that same privilege. And then also getting the consent from those individuals to help them, right? Because I think sometimes as an ally, we have this desire to help other people, but you never know by speaking up on somebody's behalf, you might be outing that person or disclosing a a part of them that they're not ready to talk about. And so always going into something with good intent because you will make mistakes. And like Zach was saying, that's okay. Apologize, learn from it, move on. But using your privilege for good always. And that starts with identifying your privilege. So being cognizant about where do I have privilege and how does that privilege change depending on the environment in which I'm in and who else is in that environment with me. One of the things that we spoke about too is that authenticity should never be mandated. And so I'm curious when we think about that or people who have influence or privilege, but perhaps it's around a hidden identity or an identity that isn't visible, how they can use their influence in those spaces. And I I think they can. I think they can, whether they choose to disclose or not disclose, whether to be more visible or, or less visible. But it does add a layer, I think, of complexity. So we've been wrapping each episode by talking about how privilege and intersectionality and equity and identity can really complicate various issues. So I'd love your thoughts on, and Azaria, I know you touched a little on this earlier, but as it relates to coming out at work, the importance of taking an intersectional lens and an intersectional approach. Absolutely. So I think the reason intersectionality when having these discussions is so important to center as a part of these discussions is because It just allows us to have a greater understanding of everything that's being brought to the table as opposed to just one dynamic, right? In general, people are multifaceted. And so we have to have an appreciation for that. But also 
when you're talking about someone whose identity, different layers of IDs are several different minority identities, that needs to be something that is really understood because that drives our ability to have empathy and a greater level of empathy when those identities become that much more complex. And so when we're having these this dialogue around why intersectionality is important, it's important because it allows us to receive people who are bringing their whole selves to the table, right? Whereas if I only have an understanding around a singular component of someone's identity, I'm only treating them or viewing them through that identity, but that does not account for everything else that contributes based off of these other layers of identities that are minority identities specifically that make life that much more difficult because of our world and how it operates. So in order to receive people holistically, we have to understand holistically to the best of our abilities what their their lives encompass. I think that is such a beautiful answer. And I feel like we could talk about this for, you know, a whole nother season and still not be done. But we, uh, Zach, Azaria, and I would love to hear your thoughts if you're listening to this and your questions. So please write us, call us. And for those who do write in and call in, we're going to be giving out a free copy of the book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. In every Q&A episode, we draw a name and we announce the winner for that particular episode. So there's 12 chances to receive a free copy of the book this season. Azaria, do you care to do the honors and announce this episode's winner? I would love to. Drum roll, please. For this episode, our winner is Tim Miller, who is a newsletter subscriber. Awesome. Congrats, Tim. Thank you so much to everyone who subscribes to the newsletter and calls and writes us with questions. And make sure you're following us on Instagram or on Facebook and LinkedIn. We'll be answering some of your questions on those social platforms as well. But of course, thank you so much for tuning in today. Thank you for listening in more than 50 plus countries around the world. And if you would like to contact today's Q&A expert, Kelly Clark, you can find her contact info in the description below. She is able to be reached on LinkedIn. Also, visit DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com to subscribe to our newsletter and learn about our DEI trainings, workshops, coaching, consulting, and our other DEI services. Yes, please get involved, get engaged, connect with us, connect with Sedwick, get your employer engaged. Or if you are an employer listening to this, hopefully this podcast will support you in creating more inclusive workplace cultures. Every episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by Darylise Lyons. With the invaluable assistance of co-collaborator and marketing manager, Zach James, Azaria Keyes, assistant director of Sedwick, who is a co-producer and coordination consultant for this podcast, our assistant producer and editor, Paul Kondo, production and development assistant, Stuart Kreintz, and our content editor and creative collaborator, Sunny Taylor. And the music you heard is Demystifying Diversity, an original composition, the lyrics of which were written by Darylise Lyons in collaboration with Ramon Beeftink, who also created all the music and performed vocals and instrumentals. Thank you again to Kelly Clark and to you, the listener, and Zach and Azaria, thank you so much. This was really great. Please, if you're listening to this, join us next week where we'll be talking about communicating and emoting, speaking and listening in the workplace. So be sure to tune in for that. 
And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.